Nearly 100 years before the writing of the Declaration of Independence, an important protest against oppression was written here in Philadelphia. This protest is now called the Germantown Protest of 1688. It's the earliest written anti-slavery document in the United States. It was written to protest something that the writers of this document witnessed firsthand, the practice of slavery by wealthy Quakers right here in Philadelphia. The Germantown protest is remarkable for its humanitarian voice. The writers were mostly working class Quaker linen weavers, and they were able to see enslaved people as fellow human beings who were unfairly treated because of the color of their skin. They called out slavery as an act of violence and political oppression, and they dared to call the slave-owning Quaker elites of Philadelphia thieves, hypocrites, and unchristian. The writers of the Germantown protest were also lifelong religious radicals, anti-establishment troublemakers. When their protest was ignored by the Quaker leadership because it was too controversial, some of the writers of the Germantown protest refused to sit down and shut up. Here's what happened next. Welcome to the Found in Philadelphia podcast a podcast dedicated to telling the stories of Philadelphia's past so that we can better understand the present, because our history matters. I'm your host, Lori Ament. With each episode, I hope that you'll learn something new, see things a little differently, and be inspired to go discover some of this history for yourself, right here in the city of brotherly love. This episode builds on a previous episode about Germantown and the Germantown protest. So if you haven't listened to it yet, I highly recommend you listen to them in order and get all the background for this episode, which I'm calling The Aftermath. Let's go back to the 1690s in Philadelphia. Philadelphia has become the dominant commercial port in the region, and the city is expanding in a long line up and down along the busy docks of the Delaware Riverfront. An immigrant from England, William Bradford, has opened up a printing press and a bookshop in the city. This is a sure sign that Philadelphia is becoming more cultured a place where information is exchanged. Bradford invests in the construction of the first paper mill to be built in the colonies. It's a way to make sure he has a steady supply of paper for his printing business. This paper mill is run by another recent immigrant, William Rittenhouse, who learned to make paper in an area of Europe that's now the Netherlands. Rittenhouse locates his paper mill on a tributary of the Wissahickon Creek, down the hill from his fellow Dutch and German immigrants in Germantown. You can still visit that area today. It's called Rittenhouse Town, and William Rittenhouse's home still stands there. This location near Germantown made a lot of sense because Rittenhouse's paper was made by processing rags. And Germantown, even at this early date, was already the center of linen and wool weaving in the colony. So the scraps from Germantown's early cloth business fed Rittenhouse's paper mill. And Rittenhouse's paper mill, in turn, provided paper for Bradford's printing press. And pretty soon, the words of these Germantown linen weavers would be feeding that printing press as well. But even while Philadelphia and Germantown were growing and prospering, there was trouble brewing within the Quaker leadership itself. I think that William Penn's experiment in religious freedom was destined for this kind of infighting. When you invite in a bunch of freethinkers who are daring enough to break away from everything they've ever known to start over in a new place, you're likely to run into trouble. And when Philadelphia got its own printing press, it kicked things up a notch. The Quaker leaders of Philadelphia were about to be tested by one of their own, 
a Quaker leader named George Keith, who used Bradford's printing press to publicly shame the Quaker elite and create fractures within the early Quaker community. Historians call this infighting the Keithian controversy. And if you'll bear with me for a bit, you'll see that Germantown's radical weavers were right in the thick of it. George Keith was an early Quaker firebrand. Born in Scotland, where he attended college, he converted to Quakerism in the 1660s. He had his faith tested by beatings and several stints in jail, where he wrote a lot of Quaker theology books. Keith also accompanied George Fox, the founder of the Quaker faith, and William Penn on some of their missionary trips into Europe, looking for converts to Quakerism and colonists for Pennsylvania. Keith ultimately ended up in Philadelphia around 1689. But in Philadelphia, this grand Quaker experiment, Keith didn't like what he saw. So what was George Keith so upset about? In very simple terms, Keith thought that the Quaker leaders in Philadelphia had strayed too far from the life and teachings of Jesus Christ and were relying far too much on the concept of inner light. Keith tried to show the Philadelphia Quakers the error of their ways by commissioning William Bradford to print his helpful publication called Gospel Order and Discipline Improved. But the Philadelphia Quakers weren't having it. So Keith continued to make trouble. He publicly shamed a prominent Quaker preacher and had Bradford print several more inflammatory pamphlets. That's when the establishment Quaker leaders turned the tables on Keith and 28 Quaker judges at the Philadelphia Yearly Meeting accused Keith of multiple wrongdoings and gave him a public dressing down. But Keith was pretty charismatic and had found a following in the Philadelphia region, mostly within the working class of the city. And to distinguish themselves, Keith's followers called themselves Christian Quakers. Keith's attacks on the Quaker elite resonated with the working class of Philadelphia, who were feeling overtaxed and burdened by the wealthy Quaker leadership. And some of Keith's Christian Quakers supported him in yet another public pamphlet. We'll call this document an appeal from the 28 judges to the spirit of truth, to keep it short. This one was printed by William Bradford in 1692. And one of the Christian Quakers who signed his name in support of the public appeal was Abraham Optengrafe, that radical linen weaver from Germantown and one of the writers of the Germantown protest. Before we go on, it's important to note the difference between the Germantown protest of 1688 and what Abraham Optengrafe is getting involved in here in 1692. The earlier protest was written and submitted within the proper channels of the established Quaker hierarchy. First, it was sent to their regional meeting, and from there it went to the yearly meeting. And then it was stuffed in a drawer and forgotten about. So Abraham Optengrave must have felt that the Quakers' official process for handling problems was too slow, too restrictive, and ultimately ineffective. So like so many progressive Quakers after him, Abraham Optengrave decided to stick with his convictions and go rogue. Here's Mary Crowderoof, the curator of the Quaker collections at Haverford College, who we met in an earlier episode. She explains this Quaker tradition of splinter groups that root out social injustice within the establishment and have helped shape Quakerism over the years. You have these outside movements also pushing back into the yearly meeting, and they create divisions. If you look at the, the Quaker tree and all of the different branches over time, you really see how they've intermingled to really push forward a lot of these social movements. So when Abraham Optengrafe signed on to this public pamphlet in support of George Keith, he did so in order to take on the Quaker leadership 
and to shift public opinion from outside the organization's hierarchy. He literally took the fight from the meeting house to the street. Keith's followers stuck the printed pamphlets to posts around the city and handed them out in taverns. This was the 17th century version of going viral. And to the Philadelphia Quaker leadership, it felt like they were losing control. The city was littered with the defiant words of Keith and his Christian Quaker followers, and they were forming separate Quaker meetings outside of the establishment. So the Quaker leaders had George Keith jailed and planned to discredit him in a spectacular public trial. However, things didn't go quite as planned. First of all, Keith was pretty used to being thrown in jail, and he treated the trial like a pulpit where he could preach his ideas. And then the jury ultimately found that Keith's actions were reprehensible, sure, but not in fact illegal. This upset the Quaker justices overseeing Keith's jury trial. So they threw out the jury's verdict and fined Keith five pounds for defamation, which he never paid. And then the printer, William Bradford, he was also jailed and his printing press was seized. And in an early case about freedom of the press in this country, Bradford argued that he just printed the pamphlets. He didn't write them. The jury again failed to find that Bradford had done anything illegal. This enraged the Quaker justices, who threatened to confine the jury until they came back with the proper verdict, which they refused to do. This trial was the last straw for Bradford. He resented the Quaker establishment censorship, and he left Philadelphia for New York soon after. Though Bradford continued to print pamphlets for Keith from New York, using paper from Rittenhouse's mill in Germantown. And Abraham Optengrave, rather than being scared off by all the trouble caused by these pamphlets, he saw the printing press as an effective way to continue his fight against slavery. So this was the climate in Philadelphia in 1693. Quakers in the city were divided between the Orthodox establishment Quakers, who were predominantly the wealthy elite, and many of them slaveholders. In opposition were the Christian Quakers, the followers of George Keith, including our radical linen weaver from Germantown, Abraham Optengrave. Like him, the Christian Quakers were mostly working class, and they resented the Quaker leadership, enough to set up their own Quaker meetings and to sign their names to inflammatory pamphlets published by a sympathetic printer. And this fight had just gone very public with a series of contentious jury trials. Into this highly charged atmosphere, came the first printed anti-slavery document in the United States. For short, we'll call this the Exhortation of 1693. Rather than being intimidated by the Quaker elite, the Christian Quakers saw all this infighting as an opportunity to take their leaders to task for their hypocritical dealings with slavery. Quaker leaders weren't going to be able to shove this protest into some dusty drawer. This time, the anti-slavery protest was gonna be printed and plastered all over town. So here's the exhortation of 1693, hot off Bradford's printing press. Just like the Germantown protest, the exhortation builds its anti-slavery arguments on the foundations of the golden rule. To do unto others what we have others do to us. Therefore, as we and our children would not be kept in perpetual bondage and slavery against our consent, neither should we keep them in perpetual bondage and slavery against their consent, it being such intolerable punishment to their bodies and minds that none but notorious criminal offenders deserve the same. But these have done us no harm. 
Therefore, how inhumane is it in us so grievously to oppress them and their children from one generation to another. And the exhortation is quite clear on what the writers think of slavery, adding details of its cruelty. To buy souls and bodies of men for money, to enslave them and their posterity to the end of the world, we judge as a great hindrance to the spreading of the gospel and is occasion of much war, violence, cruelty and oppression, and theft and robbery of the highest nature. And many that by them do exceedingly afflict them and oppress them, not only by continual hard labor, but by cruel whippings and other cruel punishments, and by short allowance of food. The exhortation emphasizes that the writers believe that Jesus Christ died for all of mankind, regardless of their skin color. Negroes, blacks, and tawnies are a real part of mankind for who Christ has shed his precious blood and are capable of salvation as well as white men. The exhortation urges Quakers to bring enslaved people into liberty, both inward and outward. They reject the pervasive argument among the Quakers of the day that you can enlighten enslaved people's souls with religion while keeping their bodies in bondage. The exhortation makes one exception. Quakers can purchase slaves if it's with the intention of giving them their freedom and treating them like indentured servants, teaching them to read, giving them a Christian education, and releasing them after a reasonable time of service. The exhortation is clear that those who have escaped slavery should be protected within the community and not returned to bondage. Those which are at liberty and freed from their bondage should not by us be delivered into bondage again. Neither by us should they be oppressed, but being escaped from his master should have the liberty to dwell amongst us, which it liketh him best. This is an important part. Even within the history of white anti-slavery activism, very few believed that freed blacks should have liberty to dwell amongst us. Most whites believed that freed blacks should be removed either to separate settlements or sent back to Africa. But the writers of the exhortation basically state that freed people could choose to live where they liked. And lastly, the exhortation is quite clear about why men keep slaves, because it makes them rich, but at the peril of their souls. Because slaves and souls of men are some merchandise of Babylon, by which the merchants of the earth are made rich, by those riches which they have heaped together through the cruel oppression of these miserable creatures will be a means to draw God's judgment upon them. This is a real blow at the Quaker elite as moral and religious leaders. It compares them to the greediest, most power-hungry merchants of the Bible. These were fighting words. As the leader of the Christian Quakers, George Keith is often cited as the author of the Exhortation of 1693. But historians see the same radical humanitarian ideas from the earlier Germantown protest running through the exhortation. So George Keith certainly helped to get this pamphlet printed by William Bradford, who was then set up for printing in New York. But the sentiments of the exhortation read more like the Germantown protest than anything Keith ever wrote. Historian Catherine Gerbner hears the voice of Abraham Optengrave in the exhortation of 1693. He was one of the writers of the Germantown protest against slavery and was a follower of George Keith. But as a member of the working class, his contributions have been overlooked. When you look at Keith's record, for example, 
He never wrote an anti-slavery protest before or after this exhortation. So why do we assume that he was responsible for it? So I think that there is sort of a classist dimension in the way that um, people have interpreted authorship. And I think it's really important to see that in most cases, it wasn't the best educated person who was trying to make this anti-slavery argument. After the printing of the Exhortation of 1693, what happened then? Well, very little. Though the Quaker community continued to be shaken by the Keithian controversy, the Exhortation did little to stop the practice of slavery in Pennsylvania. A few years after the Exhortation was printed, a prominent Quaker, Cadwallader Morgan, freed all of his slaves. But we know that slavery actually increased in the Quaker colony up until about 1750, with most of the enslaved people coming from the network of Quaker plantations in the West Indies. Real humanitarian arguments against slavery didn't disturb Quaker meetings until about 50 years later with the activism of Quakers in the next generation. Though it's worth noting that when the Quakers did get serious about ending the practice of slavery among its members, the fault line split along the same lines as the Keithian controversy, with the slaveholding wealthy elite pitted against the less wealthy anti-slavery working class. And Abraham Optengrave, what happened to him after publicly shaming the Quaker leadership in this way? Well, the Keithian controversy touched Abraham Optengrave personally. The fighting created a split between Abraham and his two brothers who had emigrated to Pennsylvania together. Abraham and his brother Herman would side with Keith, while their brother Dirk would side with the Quaker establishment. In fact, George Keith publicly called Dirk Optengrave an impudent rascal, which was later mentioned in the Quakers' public disownment of Keith. So the rift between the brothers must have run pretty deep if they stuck with Keith even after he insulted their brother. Abraham Optengrave was also recorded as being unruly and having several legal disputes with his neighbors in Germantown. And eventually he moved away, disillusioned with Quakerism, and ultimately he returned to his original Mennonite roots. Our Quaker historian, Catherine Gerbner, sees Abraham Optengrave as one of the unsung heroes of the anti-slavery movement in the United States. He suffered for his principles, but he stood by them, and he's the one that we should hold up and remember for what he recognized and what he put on the line to make these anti-slavery arguments. While Abraham Optengrave has not perhaps been given credit for his contributions to early anti-slavery documents, there's enough information on him in the archives for us to build a sense of who he was as an individual, so that we can now go back and hear echoes of his voice. But it's difficult to find a voice for the enslaved Africans in Philadelphia during this early period. Who were these people being treated as property in early colonial Pennsylvania? And what was life like for them? Well, before we get to that, let's talk about slavery up north. We need to be careful not to tell ourselves any fairy tales that enslaved people in the north were treated better than those in the south. That up north, we somehow practiced slavery light. Right here in Philadelphia, human beings were sold at auction, separated from their families, and treated like property with no official acknowledgement that they had any rights. In many ways, slavery in the North was more isolating. There were fewer enslaved people, and they slept in the cramped attics, basements, hallways, kitchens of their owners. There was even less chance that you might remain near your family or live with your children. Most of the enslaved people in Philadelphia were hired out, forced to do the most backbreaking labor that ran colonial households, moved goods from ships, 
cleared land for farms, and built roads. Even though we have no written protest by these enslaved people, it's important to know that they were here, in Philadelphia, from the very beginning. They suffered the indignities and cruelty of slavery, while also helping to build the wealth of Philadelphia and its surrounding farmland. And some recent research is helping us understand who they were and what they experienced. So who were these enslaved people forced to come to early colonial Philadelphia? Research indicates that most of these early enslaved Africans in Philadelphia came from Quaker plantations in Barbados, where many of Philadelphia's Quaker elite had business interests or property themselves. And the majority of the enslaved people who came to Barbados were originally from West Africa, from the area that is now Ghana, Togo, Benin, and Nigeria. So rather than representing a broad mix of African heritage, the majority of the enslaved people of Barbados, who would later be sent to Philadelphia, came from a relatively small area of West Africa. And what was life like for these people? Enslaved people were used to warmer weather and suffered cruelly in the Philadelphia winters, becoming very sick and even dying in the cold weather, according to early records. The remains of enslaved people from this early colonial period in the African-American burial ground in New York City have been studied at Howard University. Their bones tell a story of a life of severe physical stress and unsanitary living conditions. And we can infer that life would have been similar for them in colonial Philadelphia. The skeletons of enslaved people in New York show evidence of injuries that were similar to those seen in the remains of enslaved people from the South. The research team found signs of disease, malnutrition, beatings, and evidence of a life of hard labor. And these signs of physical stress were found even in the remains of the very young. However, the remains of enslaved people don't tell the whole story. These people were more than just bones. And the historical record shows that they lived lives of constant resistance and ingenuity in the face of the violence and injustices of slavery. Though there are no records of enslaved people's writing from this period, their feelings on being enslaved were spoken loudly through their deeds. Philadelphia in this early period had fewer enslaved people scattered in smaller groups. There weren't the same opportunities for large groups of enslaved people to rise up in violent protest as they did throughout the plantation economy of the Caribbean. However, there were forms of everyday resistance that were practiced here. Many ran away. For others, they sought to purchase their own freedom or the freedom of their children by earning money on their own time. Some learned a skilled trade to earn their own wages. Others bartered and traded for food and goods throughout their own underground economy. And enslaved people made heroic efforts to maintain their family ties and culture despite everything. These early enslaved people in Philadelphia would have been from a relatively small area on the west coast of Africa. They would have been survivors of kidnapping and the horrors of the Atlantic passage on slave ships. They would have come through the enslaved community that formed on the plantations of Barbados. This shared experience and similar background must have allowed them to retain some sense of their ethnic and cultural identity, despite this traumatic displacement. Historical records show how enslaved people that shared similar languages and cultural affinities formed widespread groups known as nations in the New World, with their own social hierarchies and practices. In many ways, enslaved people relied on this shared experience to forge new identities within the confines of slavery. And while enslaved people were seen as an indispensable part of the workforce of early colonial Philadelphia, their presence here was also seen as a threat. And we know this because it was encoded in the official racist laws of the colony. 
As the number of enslaved people in Pennsylvania grew, starting in 1700, the Quaker colony instituted a series of laws and even a separate court system that institutionalized racism and unequal treatment for black people. Pennsylvania's so-called Black Code was written to control the movements of black people, both free and enslaved within the colony. Black people couldn't gather in groups larger than four. They couldn't be tried by a jury of their peers. The Black Code outlined harsher punishments required for blacks than whites, even when they were found guilty of the same crime. If you, like me, were blissfully unaware that Pennsylvania had a Black Code, you may be feeling a little queasy, but it gets even worse. An act passed in Pennsylvania in 1725 set high fines for black people convicted of even petty crimes, with especially high fines for those who were found to be harboring escaped slaves. And if those high fines couldn't be paid, black people could be sold into servitude, even if they were free. And the children of free blacks in Pennsylvania were bound in service to the local justice of the peace until the age of 24 for boys and 21 for girls. And this is just a very few of the injustices of the Black Code. If you were Black in the colony of Pennsylvania, regardless of your status, the deck was stacked against you. But free Blacks and enslaved people continuously found loopholes and ways to defy the colony's laws, which was then followed by a new crackdown from the government. In Pennsylvania, the Black Code laws expanded to forbid Blacks participating in horse racing, shooting matches, then banned hunting on Sundays then added penalties for being out at night. Wherever enslaved people found new ways to resist, the government encoded stricter and stricter laws to keep them under control. And yet the resistance continued. In whatever way they could, enslaved people found a way to maintain their human dignity and sense of independence. As one historian wrote, they resisted slavery by being themselves. So I wanna bring us back to Germantown today the neighborhood in the northwest of Philadelphia faces many challenges, but has the strength of its diverse community, which we discussed in the previous episode. I see threads of Germantown's history and the progressive, anti-racist activism of the community, and the resiliency and advocacy of its Black citizens. It's not a colorblind dreamland, but here there is a feeling of mutual respect between people from different backgrounds and an understanding that we're stronger if we work together. Germantown residents want improvements for the broader community as a whole. Good schools, a place to develop workforce skills, a spur for greater diversity of businesses, and improved security for the neighborhood. But they feel overlooked by the city and feel prey to developers who seem to want to remake the neighborhood for wealthier residents with different priorities. I mentioned the closing of Germantown's public high school in the previous episode. This has left a huge hole in the community and has supercharged the tensions surrounding all kinds of changes in the neighborhood. A master plan for the reuse of the huge Germantown High School site was released in June of 2019. It showed a mix of apartments, shared workspaces, and space for a new school. But residents wanted to make sure that the former high school would be accessible to the full spectrum of Germantown's population to give back to everyone. At meetings, residents raised concerns that the project didn't provide enough affordable housing units, and they meant affordable according to Germantown residents. Throughout the summer, neighbors have worked on a community benefits agreement to take to the developer. These agreements give neighborhoods some control over development, while developers get their residents' approval for the project, which can help streamline city approvals for rezoning. But after learning that the developer paid only $100,000 for the Germantown High School site, residents have a lot of demands. At the time of recording this podcast, the final community benefits agreement was still in the works. 
In the meanwhile, the community's fears continue to be fueled by the construction of new high-end townhouses by other developers throughout the neighborhood. Houses that the current residents couldn't possibly afford. So we'll all have to wait to find out what finally happens at the Germantown High School site. But I can tell you that the community is pulling together despite a confusing city approval process that seems designed to cause division. For example, rezoning requires input only from neighbors that live within 200 feet of the impacted property. But many Germantown High School graduates have a deep personal investment in what happens to that building. And the redevelopment of this huge site right in the center of Germantown will likely have major impacts on the entire neighborhood. Shouldn't the broader community have some say? Here is longtime Germantown resident Dennis Barnaby on the community's frustrations with what they feel like has been happening without their input in Germantown and with long delays in getting improvements that the community really wants. I think a lot of people just feel like, you know, we've been taken advantage of for a long time and, and people are just tired of it. It's like, this is a better neighborhood than that. How many times have we heard this? You know, don't tell us stuff again until, you know, show us. Yeah. And I think that's how most people really feel. Despite the difficulties, Dennis has great faith in his community. He thinks Germantown is up to this challenge. But I do think that this, there is pride in this, that you don't mess with us, kind of yeah. this attitude. So it's, no, there's a limit to what, what you're going to do here. And it's not a matter of kicking anybody out. And that's the whole issue of gentrification now, which is now, you know, on people's agenda. Many of us are saying, we like our neighbors. We just want this to be a better place for all of us. We shouldn't be pushing anybody out. And how to do that, of course, is the big trick. Um, and, and if it can be done, it will be done here. <laughs> yeah. As Dennis reminded me, the struggle continues and history is constantly being made. I came to Germantown to tell a story about this place, to breathe new life into an important moment of the past. But Germantown and its community really schooled me in the process. Here's lifelong Germantown resident, Zendra Sharif Trudeau, about how Germantown's past seems to permeate the present through the activism of its community. It's almost like a grassroots understanding of what happened here, you know, and what the importance of this place. And not only that, but it's still palpable. It's the spirit of here. So I don't know if you have to actually like see a document, you know, to understand and feel, you know, it's a vibration here. While it's far from perfect, Germantown residents seem to have a shared vision of what they want to be. A place of welcome that remains accessible for people at all income levels. Where a diversity of cultural heritage is celebrated equally where investment benefits the community that lives there now, not a wealthier group who might move in. And just a really great place to raise your kids. Thank you for listening to the Found in Philadelphia podcast. This podcast was made possible in part through a grant from the Athenaeum of Philadelphia. I'd like to thank all of the amazingly generous people whose voices you heard on this episode. Dennis Barnaby, Catherine Gerbner, Mary Crowderoof, Zendra Sharif Trudeau, and Stefan Kaufer. Thank you all for your time and willingness to be a part of this project. I'm also deeply thankful for the support of Cyril Tayendier, an associate teaching professor and audio engineer at Drexel University and head of Mad Dragon Recording Studios. If you're like me and you just can't get enough of Philadelphia and its history, then you can take a deep dive at foundinphiladelphia.com, where you'll find images, links, and a big fat bibliography. And if you like the show and don't want to miss the next episode, please subscribe to Found in Philadelphia wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm hard at work in the next episode. It's really interesting. And I can't wait to share it with you.